0: Digital Drift, episode 57, recorded Saturday, 26th of September, 2014. Fast Five.
1: So I see you've all met. What's this all about, Dom? Yeah, man, why'd you drag us halfway around the world? Because we got a job. That's a stealth mission. We'll be in and out before they even know we were there. We're talking about breaking into a police station. This is crazy. This is a hundred million dollars. You say what? I'm down. Is all of this really necessary to apprehend who make? One's a former federal officer, spent five years in deep cover. The other one's a professional criminal, Escape prison twice. We find them, we take them as a team, and we bring them back. And above all else, we don't ever, ever let them get in the cars.
0: We just went from the middle of the most wanted list to the very top.
1: You gotta keep running now. Running ain't freedom. You're going down, Toretto? Big mistake. <laughs> just went from mission impossible to mission in freaking sanity. Doesn't change a thing. Chances are, sooner or later, we're going to end up behind bars or buried in a ditch somewhere. But not today.
0: So, Fast Five. The Fast and the Furious Five. Let's just call it Fast Five.
2: Yeah, that's a weird thing. States, it is called Fast and Furious Five. Over here, Fast Five. Uh-huh.
0: And- the various films go by various different names but uh usually you're supposed to go with what the bbfc call them in this country uh, but that would mean that iron man 3 is called iron man and then the word three and uh mm-hmm. i don't afford it that particular uh,
2: well according to my box set indulgence it is it's fast and furious 5 yet yeah, you watch it it does say fast 5 and
0: 6 says furious 6 on nope. the title card
2: yeah i uh- do really notice because again my box says Fast and Furious 6 that's what I call it.
0: So we'll go with Fast 5 and Furious 6 just because it makes it easier to remember which is which and also because it's if it's Fast 5 and Fast 6 it also almost makes them seem less of a two-parter which it kind
2: of is. And, a con- and sort of becoming... I don't even want to say it's a trilogy because it's not because they are all connected now so yeah. Yeah. It's it, it,
0: it, retroactively they drew the connections. Okay yeah. so... We're in Rio now, and it's it. the tone of this one is that it's, it's actually kind of a neat balance between four's very um, dour gritty, uh, gritty is a good way of putting it, uh, and six's level of energy. Usually I hate when sequels are described as grittier, because it's just a way of saying, look, the first one was bright and fun, and now we've made it less fun, so it's better. Usually it isn't. But in... F- Fast and Furious, the fourth one, it literally seems like there's a lot more grit. I mean, they drive through a mountain.
2: I think they do a very clever thing as well, where they start off and it, can, so it it's a lighter, but it's still that grim tone because you're feeling the desperation of these characters. Yeah. And the minute they come to the plan and he mentions the team, they flip that switch where the fun kicks back in and the hope and the light sort of rises in it.
0: Does anyone remember laughter? You're going to have to fill in the blanks for us, Neil, because obviously we saw uh, four, five, and six in in pretty quick succession. And for Sharon, at least, that was the first time she'd seen any of them. And for me, uh, it was five and six for the first time. So when they um, bring in the... Well, first off, before they assemble the team, it's the heist with the cars on the train, isn't it?
2: Which they almost derailed.
0: Yeah. That bit where they drive the... uh, What is it? A Cobra? No. Uh, Corvette. You, yeah, they drive the Corvette over a cliff. Yeah, my jaw hit the floor, and my jaw never hits the floor during
2: stunts. <laughs> it's a stunt where you just go. Even for this world, in this reality, with the physics you've pushed, yeah, really. <laughs> and the fact that,
0: that uh, Brian's just so fucking cool about it, he starts to surf on the back of the car. Um, and uh, before he you know, sort of get gears up to jump, and and then Vin does thats also a Butch and Sundance reference as well. They even yeah. mention that in the extras, and uh, and and say that that's them going in there. And and, and suddenly Brian and uh, uh, Odama are totally on the same team for a change, and it, it yeah, unifies. Big thing. Yeah, uh,
2: that's a big thing. Also, in this one, uh, the reason they're doing this job—the guy they get this job from—is Vince from the first yeah. film, who hadn't been seen. And a nice thing—if you're paying attention—he has scars on his arm.
0: Well done for keeping that quiet, because that was a surprise for us. We didn't know he was in it.
2: Yeah, he's, he's, he's put on a few pounds. Yeah, he had, mostly around the face.
3: <laughs> but that kind of makes sense, because they have this setup where, you know, he has the wife, he has the kid, he's started to get a little bit soft. This is what happens when people get older. And again, yeah. it's the, that's kind of what i think they were trying to seed with four but it didn't really click until now when you can actually see the um the progress of time passing
1: yeah
2: yeah
0: because uh, this this is the one they start to drift back to the idea of family i mean it was still in four but it was such a small broken little family in four with so much hurt between them that it was hard to really warm to it now suddenly mia's pregnant and that bit where um uh, sorry. Uh, where Dom embraces them and says, "The family just got a little bigger." Is wonderful.
2: It is, and Cheers. that's that is probably the key thing that they've managed to continue through. That this is a family, and that's yeah. its driving goal. I'm glad and I so mentioned I that. The, action, in the first one, which is probably why we're going to get going to be a key part of seven, yeah. In six, but yeah, and. You know how we were talking about character growth, we finally sort of get that, or an explanation of Brian's motivations now, now, sort of, in the fifth one. Which took him five films to get to, but at least they actually got to it.
0: His father was never there for him, and he doesn't remember anything about him, so that's his resolve to be there for his unborn child. Yeah. And um, that sort of
2: longing for the family explains why he fell, sort of, I don't want to say fell for them, but you know what I mean, he fell into that step and began to feel whole again because you, you sort of get the feeling that he had a really unhappy child. And then yeah. in this undercover case, he found the family he always wanted.
0: Got yeah. embroiled with Dom. I think um, Mia actually mentioned earlier in the first one that everyone moves towards Dom. He's like gravity, which is a good way of putting it because he becomes the father figure of this family, mm. which is, again, that's a growth move for him because it took him giving himself up at the end of four to actually become a, 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 a man who would care about other people than himself. And he cared about them before, but he really had to just let go at the end of four and stop running. That was an important move. So maybe if four achieved nothing else, it was that.
2: And the good thing they do with this, we literally pick up where the last film left off. Yeah, which is a neat one. No, which both. is nice, but good God, how did anyone? The thing that makes me laugh is we sort of we, we pick literally pick up where the last film left off with cars causing the bus to crash, and then we get sort of news and reports of what's gone on. Yeah. If you listen to those news reports, apparently no one was killed in that crash. How? That Like, when the bus turned over, I shouted,
0: ''That's your plan? To murder every man on board that bus?''
2: Yeah, the, I think the bus crash was probably a little bit. They needed it to be spectacular. I think it was a little too spectacular.
0: <laughs> maybe they were. Imp- maybe that wasn't the plan at all. And there's something that Brian mentions later. We do what we do best. We improvise. improvise. They were just like, let's just chase the bus, and we'll somehow we'll get Dom off. Sharon, you were about to say something.
3: Um, well, no, I was just going to say the uh, the fact that uh, Dom has these moments throughout Five where he's um, he's kind of evidencing this determination to be the centre point for his family, albeit a glued-together family, because of having this father figure that he was very dedicated to, who he then lost. Um, And Brian responding to that because he never had it in the first place. And he has this great admiration for Dom for wanting to do that and wanting to be this sort of um, focal point for his family. That story about the barbecue, that was Mm. so lovely. I thought that was such a nice thing to throw in there um, because it was – it, it was something that Dom remem- remembered about his father that was nothing to do with cars, nothing to do with racing. Technically speaking, nothing to do with the overarching theme that the whole thing is supposed to be about. Mm. It was just this really sweet little moment. Um, and it actually, there are elements of how this franchise has progressed that really made me think of everything that grabbed us about Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. and everything that grabbed us about Avengers. And I, in fact, I think I said, this film was made in a world where the Avengers exists. They have to acknowledge its, um, what was great about it and what people responded to about it. And it, it kind of has that same tone to it. I
2: actually, I think one of the more touching moments, I know the barbecue story is really good, but I like the one where he's talking about his dad and Mia. Yeah, when his dad, yeah, well, dad
0: helped Mia with the, the uh, homework, homework. And, and then stay up it. an hour
2: later yeah. so he could learn the next chapter. And that's well, that's that's a that's sort of like a, a dad thing to do.
0: Vin Diesel had a lovely relationship with both his uh, mother and father. His father was, was he a casting agent in, uh, in the theatre He show?
3: Was a, he was a theatre manager. That was his oh, stepdad. He, oh, or oh, yes, yeah, he stepfather. didn't know his father. He didn't know his um, but
0: his, yeah. He, so he, he was very close to his de facto father. Yeah. And was. what was his mother?
3: Uh, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I want to say teacher or something. She I, was I someone think else she in authority. Was, I
3: think she worked in a, a theatrical... Because he, he kind of grew up around theatre and actors. So.
0: We never leave these kind of things unresearched, fellas. Uh, Dolora Vincent, Vin Diesel's mother. She's an astrologer. She's an astrologer.
2: Well, like, professionally? Evidently.
0: Um, Hang on. Diesel Mm -hmm. was born in New York City along with his twin brother, Paul. His mother, Dolores, Sinclair, Vincent, is an Mm -hmm. astrologer. Uh, Diesel has stated that he is of ambiguous ethnicity. His mother's background includes English, German, and Scottish. He never met his biological father and has stated that all I know from my mother is that I have connections to many different cultures. He's a melting pot. Diesel has self-identified as definitely a person of colour. He has stated that his parents' relationship would have been illegal in some parts of the United States due to anti-miscegenation laws. He was raised by his Caucasian mother, and African-American stepfather, Irving H. Vincent, as an, uh, an acting instructor and theatre manager. So, yeah, he made a stage debut at age seven when he appeared in the children's play Dinosaur Door, written by Barbara Garson. So, yeah, basically it's in his blood. He met, uh, this is in a bit in the Guardians of the Galaxy episode where he uh, t- talks very openly about his, uh, himself and his childhood. And mm-hmm. I'm starting to really warm to Vin Diesel there. I, uh, when I first saw the extras on the Iron Giant way back, I thought, this guy's really going to go somewhere. And he did. And then he wandered off. And now he's back, and I'm really happy for him.
2: Vin like, is one of those strange people. He, I think, he is one of those people. He has to do a project that he genuinely cares about. Yeah. And then you see the real good stuff show through on him, even if it is something ridiculous like Triple X. He, he's, as bad as that film is, he cared about it, so he does put the effort in.
0: Well, Why you do the pacifier, Vin? Look who's talking, Tooth Fairy.
2: Hey, Q, can I join in? I was, I was just going to say. I think when he's got that, I don't want to say passion project, but like he was so happy to do, be in Guardians of the Galaxy. And literally, all he's doing is Groot, which is literally I, I am Groot, we are Groot. Yet he was so happy. He he was so so happy that he could do that. I think that I think he's just one of those guys when he's got something that he he feels and he has love for, he will give you the best he's got. Because when he's very when he's good, he's very very good. Yeah. When he's bad, yeah, he's not so good. He's not Gandhi, <laughs> I, but still.
3: I don't think, in all honesty, he that he's Gabby. ever been bad. Even in Riddick, he's like the best thing in Riddick.
2: <laughs> Which also featured Batista, by the way. It
3: did,
0: yes. yes we, as, uh, mentioned on the, God, uh, he
3: got a lot better.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, he took acting lessons. It, yeah, it's, like I said, I'm really glad he's there and he's the centrepiece of it. And again, Fast Five is... Uh, it kind of feels like when when you uh, watch it in conjunction with Fast 6, though actually it's a two-act uh, that the uh, this one kind of musters up. It's almost like 4, 5, and 6 could have been condensed into two films. Like the events of 4 and 5 could feasibly have just been in one film, and you'd get that level of... Um, I mean, it'd be an epic, but if you could go through all those motions there with Letty's death and uh, Dom giving himself up and then the Rio heist.
2: Yeah, I think if you'd locked off quite a bit of four, it would have been better, but they didn't. So, and uh, whether it was intentional or exceedingly well retconned, because a lot of stuff is exceedingly well retconned in this franchise, which Mm. I've stated before. Isn't always the case. I know we've the easy one to point to is the prequels to Star Wars, but mm. they've tried it before and it doesn't always work. But this
0: would be uh, more just a, a way of elevating Five to being even better. As it is, Five is really good. The One of the major best inclusions is, of course... The Rock. Dwayne oh. Johnson himself as uh, the antagonist, really. I mean, there's, a, there's another guy in it. Who's the villain? Um, He's that miserable Spanish
2: yeah sort of, like, it, it, he's, have... he's your forgettable villain for this film because yeah. we've got the rock the rich guy yeah. the the guy who has more charisma than most people in hollywood
0: yeah and and charisma and muscles yes so. his arms they're like friggin' torsos
2: <laughs> i remember the excitement when they announced that he was going to be in it mm. and they said he they will be a fight with vin diesel and that for me was just like oh that's kind of jaw-droppingly exciting because to see those two throw down was going to be fun. And I when they-
0: he was just going to be a villain, villain, like he was in Doom. Remember that one? Ooh, Piece yeah, of he- crap, that film was.
2: Yeah, but at least you've got Carl Urban being fairly good in that. Oh, that
0: means Vin Diesel and The Rock have both punched around Carl Urban.
2: Yeah, that's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh,
2: Carl Urban, what did he yeah, ever do? Exactly.
0: Dread is coming back. I don't know why he's Arnie. But, uh, yeah, so you, you've got him as an antagonist, and that's the best way of putting it. I think the, the, Rock, the way The Rock put it, if you want to boo him, that's fine. If you want to cheer him, that's fine too.
2: The character works on both levels. The characters, they give him a good character because he is, he is a driving force in that film. We, the way it's set up, uh, the first off, is that they do this job, they get some, they get a car that they weren't meant to and find out that they the local drug lord. It's or, got a thing in it. It's got a, they say chip, and I'm sure chips don't work this way. I, if they said memory card or something, it would have been better. But basically, it lists where this drug dealer keeps all his money, and he wants it back. Gotcha. And because the heist at the start of the film goes goes wrong, um, the... what's it called? The, the S, DSS, is it? Uh, DEA. No, it's the DEA agents that get killed... Oh, because right. of that they send in another department which basically is the it's rock it's got letters and it's the rock <laughs> basically it's the rock and he is <laughs> he's Tommy Lee Jones from the fugitive yeah stop the rock not the not stop
1: stop 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 not the can't stop
2: and it works because you've got then you've got instead of it oh, being he's
0: twice the man tommy lee jones is.
2: yes yeah, probably because he <laughs> <asked him. laughs> but um you know um so you, instead of the typical it's it's our guys versus the villain you've got our guys versus the villain while also trying to stay one step ahead of the law as well the authorities which are instead of being sort of Painters as being incompetent are very competent and are very good at what they do.
0: Yeah, which leads uh, to a series of dazzling car chases and some some neat uh, preparation type moments. This is the first one that starts to begin, starts to feel like the Ocean's films.
2: That, that is it. This is I said to you. This is where it changes what type of film it is, and it mm. it, it it definitely borrows from the Ocean's film, and it works. I think. Oh, I I really think it does because you get to the point where they have a plan. They know they need a team and they start doing the. And I, I remember being really excited for this bit in the cinema because it was like, he starts reading off and it starts cutting to the characters. And that moment where you see uh, Tyrese Gibson or Roman Pierce appear is like, yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm and so it made t- uh, any uh, of the uh, tiresomeness about two fall into place because it's like, oh, it's okay. They were seeding Roman with that.
3: See, that was the thing about uh, about five that I thought really um, clicked for me: the fact that it retrospectively makes four and two better.
0: Mm. And it made, it brings three into the fold by the inclusion of Han. Mm. Yeah, again. Who, by the way, did he go by the pseudonym Han so- Solo? Solo, oh,
2: yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that that was apparently a little in thing that they throw in. Cool. So, yeah. But you see he, that, the whole team, and then you start seeing, like, Tyrese Gibson. You see mm. Ludacris. Yeah, of
0: course, because Ludacris was in 2 as well. What's Ludicrous's name in... in Tej. Films? Tej, of course.
2: Yeah, oh, although, apparently, they make him... It's never referenced in 2, but apparently he's really good at a tech now.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. In uh, in six, suddenly he pressed a few keyboard buttons, and suddenly he jammed a very important signal.
2: He, he needs to be. A, you need a techie for heist films. It's just a given now. Yeah. But then you also see, like, uh, you see Han, who's from four and Tokyo Drift. So okay, so two now exists as three, not because he's still not made it to Tokyo. We see Gal Gadot come back, um, and we see the the actual funny comic relief turn up.
0: The two brothers. Uh...
2: The, the two brothers. Yeah, the one that one who speaks English and one who doesn't. But. Yeah.
0: I, I don't even remember their names, and uh, I didn't miss them in six. You miss them so six, we're but right uh, in six, but
2: they are good, and I, they at least are not offensive and are actually funny for some parts.
0: Yes, significantly. Again, these are all a big step up from uh, the Transformers films. Even though four was tedious, it was never offensive.
2: No, no, it wasn't. So, And then all of a sudden, halfway through this Fast and Furious film, it becomes a heist film, Yeah, and it becomes even more enjoyable plus you've got a lot of sub running through it where um the first time that hobbs and dom meet you also meet this um uh, police officer that dom's uh, sorry not Dom, as uh, hob has wanted hobbs. to put it's wigs off the time in six i swear they're saying Cobb. no it's hobbs but um they um basically there's this is this uh rio copper who who's lost her husband. She's a copper. And he goes, I wanted you because you're the one, you're going to be the one uncorrupted copper in this entire yeah, city.
0: She can't be bought.
2: And they, they sort of have a moment with Dom and stuff. So you've got that sort of subplot running through it as well, which is quite a nice touch.
0: Cause and
2: it, the, the essence is she's the only one that understand, understands Dom's pain.
0: Yeah. Similarly, uh, Han takes a shine to uh, Giselle uh, Gal Gadot again. And... Um, they, they, they hint at to Tokyo and they, like when they drive away at the end, she says, where are we going to go now? Tokyo. And he says, we'll get there in a kind of, this is still before Tokyo drift. Nudge, 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 nudge. Yeah. And it's suddenly- kind of a sad nudge though, isn't it? It's almost like this impending, uh, yeah. at this stage is this, imp- at this stage it's an impending, it's going to happen at some point. It isn't that sad.
2: Oh, oh it, it gets worse. Actually, this is not the only nod to Tokyo earlier in the film. Um, During the train um, sequence, uh, before it actually kicks off, you have Mm -hmm. a scene where Brian and Mia, and Mia is reading this this travel magazine, and she's talking about Mm. places that don't have the extradition. Don't have
3: extradition, yeah.
2: And Tokyo (laughs) is one of them. (sighs) It's like, oh no, (laughs) we don't say Tokyo in this franchise. It makes us sad.
0: But actually, that when I was talking about the villains, they've all taken someone important away, except for Cole Hauser who was incompetent. But uh, yeah, Jesse got taken away in the, in the first film. Han got taken away in the, th- uh, the third and uh, um, Letty got taken away in the, the fourth. So there is a tension uh, in this. that and someone
2: uh, does get taken in this film as well. Later on, but someone still dies.
0: Of course. It turns out to be Vincent in this one. I think Sharon, you mentioned that, uh, what was the thing that tipped you off Vincent was going to be killed? Um. He did something. He started being a good guy.
3: It was. I don't know what. I think it, uh, no, it was the. It was the introduction of the wife and child. Ironically enough. Yeah,
0: I got a wife and um, child. I'm. I'm happy here, and yeah, uh, this is um, kind of peaceful. That's, that's not going to get wrecked.
3: Something had to be uh, sacrificed to bring home what will never you'll never get away from you know this this is always going to be chasing you and this life is always going to be dangerous to you but I think um the uh, as you say there is a constant ebb and flow to the family and I think that's actually a really significant thing about this because they lose people along the way and they gain people along the way it it gives you that feeling of of um uh, life is dynamic. People do come and go, and you don't... Once they've been with you, that's it. You don't lose the, the memory of them. They're, they're always going to be with you, even if they're gone. Yeah. But it's... That's what life is. And your life doesn't end because you lost somebody. You, you know, either you get over it or you don't get over it, but things carry on. And if... Uh, the the whole importance of that family is that if you go, that's not the end because your family will still carry on. Yeah,
0: that's why they should have uh, brought the operative in at the end of Serenity just to replenish after uh, losing book and wash. Mm. Um, maybe that's why two doesn't really register for me that there's no loss. Mm. It's the only one where where nobody really um, there's no pain. Apart from that poor guy with a rat on his stomach,
2: which again we said is so out of place in that film.
0: And <laughs> the point he goes, "Oh, he bit me! Oh, he bit you! He bit you a bit." That's the extent of this film.
2: I reckon that was that, that wasn't the scripted line. I was thinking he probably just bite the actor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he really did bite me. Just use it. Yeah. Guy, no. he, he bites he's,
3: me. He's... You see, he bites Polly too.
2: He's the he was the guy who uh,
0: Batman nearly threw off a roof. Yes. In, uh, uh, Swear, Swear to
1: me! Swear to me!
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah, back to five. The bit with the safe.
2: <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Let's talk about the. Was that first. the bit
0: that you were going to say? Was I was going to go no for physics defying?
2: No, actually, I was. I meant that the post credit scene was actually the really big. Oh God, no! Well,
0: what was the post? Remind me.
2: It's where um, what's Eva Men uh, yeah Eva Mendes. Oh Eva yes. Is, yeah. And drops the folder, and this is. Michelle Rodriguez didn't even know this. Yeah, she found she out saw about it. it.
0: Oh, she was like, someone could have called me about this? I did not agree with this.
2: <laughs> no, she was over the moon.
0: <laughs> oh, she was happy. That's good.
2: But uh, one of the great things now, once we click into the halfway point where it's, it, it becomes the heist, is a team. And hmm. all of a sudden you have these characters are interacting and, again, it, it goes up a level because you start to see, like, um, uh, Roman sort of man crushing on Dom a bit I, I do love the scene where he's explaining the plan and Roman wants to walk away and all, all Dom has to say is 100 million I'm sorry yes, what.
0: suddenly I'm uh, I'm going over this in my head and it makes much more sense now
2: mm, I was going to say because obviously you've recently done Guardians and uh, Avengers which are team up movies this, I'm not going to say this is on that level because it's not but this team together did that was that appealing?
0: I didn't want to um, say this one too early but six was the one that really started to feel like that. 5 it was okay this is all kind of coming together then so, but the 6 because of many other contributing factors started to feel like avengers. um but uh yeah they the, the the it made it seem like 5 and 6 were unifying the various disparate elements laid down in 1 2 three and four all these characters that we've mentioned we suddenly that's why i asked who comes in in four because suddenly you've got brian and uh dom and uh letty by proxy in terms of how important she is to the plot in the first one and mia and vince is obviously in this one and then you've got roman from the second one and eva Mendes' character what was her name
2: i can never remember her name
0: for a cameo it's a shame she wasn't in six actually um and then you've got Han in uh, uh, three. And also from two, you've got uh, Tej, uh, ludicrous. And th- from three, you've got Han. And from four, you've got Giselle and...
2: Comic relief guys, I suppose.
0: The comic relief, yeah. So it's almost like, it's, it's not that they'd planned this, but it's almost like Marvel's phase one where they introduce all these heroes. And then suddenly five and six, they brought them all together. Hmm. It felt like it had been planned from day one and then suddenly all the elements, they, they worked out who they were to each other and suddenly they, they worked out that, uh, that Tej and Roman together would make a great bickering pair of bitches.
2: And um, I love the fact that, that Roman tries to be the big manly man when, um, I, I want to call a gal, it? but that's the actress's name. Giselle. Um, Giselle turns up mm. and he makes the comment about the legs. That was not the comment you make to that type of woman. No. Dear God, no. They open the same time I pull this trigger. Whoa.
0: Yeah, she's very gun-happy. She,
2: but she's also gun-happy there, but she also she uses a head later on.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, she's definitely not a bimbo.
2: No. And yeah. I like the fact you, you see the romance start to build between her and Han.
0: Yeah. I think it's it's when he sees her drift that he's like, I think I'm in love. Yeah. Understand it. he
2: actually says that as well
0: and also she's determined when she doesn't get it right the first time she says right well, let's go again then and mm-hmm. uh, so she has that going on Just go straight to the heist and the, the insanity with the, um, the the safe.
2: Actually, before the heist, you actually have the the moment where they're caught. There's actually there's a lot of moments, but there's a moment uh, towards the end of the film where they think they've got one over on Hob, and actually he flipped Hobbs. Sorry, and he's flipped them. Mm. He, he's flipped it on them, and Dom, uh, Brian, and Mia get caught, and this leads to it's over the top but here. God, it, it, it's worth it. It's the fight between Hob Hobbs. Hobbs. <laughs> and uh, and on.
0: yeah, Especially that's the one where he nearly batters his head in with a, a wrench, and which immediately deliberately harkens back to how he referred to what happened to the guy who uh, led to the death of his father.
2: There's two things about this. One, there's a there's a the confrontation between the guys uh, earlier where Hobbs calls him out on that, that oh you're a tough guy with a wrench in your hand kind of thing. Mm. But if you actually watch that fight, it's Hobbs that picks the wrench up first. Yeah. And it's, a, it, it's an over-the-top fight, but it was fun.
0: And actually, it reminds me of uh, the... Who does he grab and start beating on in the first one? It's not Brian, is it? It's some somebody...
2: It's either Brian or Vince. Oh, no, that
0: was it. No, it's uh, Tran turns up and says, you know, somebody read me out to the cops. They were disappointed oh, yeah, in yeah. front of my father. Do you know what? It was you. And then he just explodes on him. Yeah. Snap. So he's still got that temper. He's still got that uh, inability to completely maintain control of himself. I yeah. think that's what scares him most of all.
2: Yeah, because he is actually quite. He shaky.
0: projects that onto the, uh, the the charger, but it's in him.
2: Yeah, he he actually is at the end of that is actually quite um, shocked at himself. Yeah, you see that in his face, and then you get the ambush. <laughs> okay, um, I know that. by this point, they really, really upset the main villain but did it strike anyone as really dumb for the the guy who's not the the big drug dealer who's made his whole thing of not being the big drug dealer ambushing pretty much the US guys bad mistake Uh, once they've caught after the fight, they're they're heading to the airport to extradite the three uh, and Vince actually back to the states and they're ambushed by uh, the thugs of Uh, the cartel guy which leads to basically Hobbs' entire team being wiped out and Vince
0: oh yes yeah I remember and and, and, uh, Dom helps him up and then they uh, they they fight their way out and there's suddenly an an, an uneasy alliance which is the best kind Uh, this reminded me of um, like Superman meets Batman they fight but then later on they team up against a common enemy
2: Mm. which also gives them a better way into the police office
0: and Wonder Woman's there as well
2: Yeah, I was wondering that <laughs> before we mentioned the fact. Gal Gadot,
0: wonderful. Also, technically, the rock is Black Adam, so he's gonna. There's like this is filled with DC villains now.
2: And root. Yeah. And possibly Black.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping that as well that he would embody the, uh, the 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 body of Black Bolt, if not the voice.
2: The heist. Come on, you want to talk about the heist, don't you? It's it's all about
0: this wrecking ball of of a safe that uh, uh, Dom's wielding, and his resolve again to be the guy to to be sacrificed in this scenario and to, just to, to let his friends go
2: the heist itself is fun it's it, it does a good p- deal a good pace to itself hmm. and it does lead into this, the ending where he he basically is going and once again going to be the one that you know you go he says Brandon, you go you're going to be a father you go i will you know i will go back and i will you know i don't want to say save the day but i will take Face the, the I, music. Will, I will i'll take the brunt of this for you yeah and, um, which is
0: unusual for a heist
2: yes it's a, it's a heist film but not by heist type characters almost yeah but then again we've had four films of these characters sort of growing
0: Yeah, four, so, five and six are all personal which is, uh, is definitely a good way of keeping it pushing forwards
2: hmm And the big reveal... Actually, the best bit is the comeuppance of the villain is so understated. I think it really works quite well because...
0: Hobbs just walks past him and puts a bullet in his head and then goes to talk to Don because that's the relationship you care about. That's the conflict you care about.
2: It's not some big dramatic moment. He literally just... The guy's on the ground and Hobbs just empties two into him and goes, that's for my team.
0: Yeah. It's almost like the conflict between, uh, while the conflict is there still between Brian and Dom, it's more of a sort of a, a, a easy camaraderie and a competition now, mm. uh, um, exemplified by that uh, the race between the five Dodge challenges. The four, yeah, four Dodge Dodge yeah, challenges, police cars.
2: You basically got Roman, Han, Brian, and Dom.
0: Yeah. And that, that's a great sort of playful moment. And again, this one has its its race wars moment again with all the, str- the 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 girlies twirling their stuff again. But it's almost like it's a token gesture in each movie, each of the three, like it, four, it, five, it, and six. It's like remember when the show, remember when the series was about this. Almost like remember when you were about this.
2: Yeah, it's it is. It, they do become less moments like oh yeah, remember about this part. Yeah, it's but it's not important so. I actually quite like the ending, and especially because it is a little bit cheap how they hide something from you. Basically, they switch safes; they yeah. get the Didn't money. You do that in
0: Ocean's Eleven as well. Yes. The same things, but like you yeah. assumed it was this <laughs> vault, but it's the other vault.
3: Which was why, when I was like, "They're buying a second vault to practice on." Okay, I think we all know how this is going to end.
2: Yeah, I'd actually watching the film forgot they'd bought the second safe to practice on. So, I, yeah. of course, uh, it's it probably because I got involved because how I love these characters, you forget about that, and it's like so right. Slap the forehead moment. Oh yeah, of course they had a second bloody save. Ever? so and so's.
0: Did, did I say Dodge Challenger? They're Dodge Chargers. They're technically the same model as uh, the one that. It's a different uh, model in a different year, but it's the one that uh, Dom's had his whole life. Mm. That's a Dodge Charger. And apparently that same Dodge Charger is the one that gets uh, obliterated in uh, Fast 4. Uh, yep. The one was rebuilt by Letty. Just basically keeps turning up throughout the series. Yeah. It's the same one. They just take out the uh, the, the air vent at the top to make it a bit more low profile when he's undercover. Oh, speaking of which, favorite cars? I don't have any
2: from 4 because he'll just <laughs> want to get past it.
0: God, there's got to be something good in four.
2: Basically, for four, I suppose it was nice to see a skyline again, nice blue skyline. But they they were really backgroundy in that film. Mm,
3: I was going to say the cars become significantly less important in four. Yeah. And even in five, as there's a set piece. Well, in fact, there's a couple of set pieces involving the cars, but they don't seem to be as central <laughs> um, as they have been in the earlier ones. When they're
0: acquiring the cars during race wars, he turns up and he's like, I'm going to challenge you to get this Porsche. You're going to challenge me to get this Porsche? This i got to see. And the audience goes, oh, at last we're going to get a race. <laughs> and then it cuts to just after the race, what? Yeah. Well, of course he gets the car. Where's the tension? Why do we have to film a several million dollar car sequence? Just, he wins, okay? He's Dom.
2: <laughs> Plus, trust us, it'll be worth it later. When yeah. we save this money, and put it into this crazy thing we do with a safe. Jesus,
0: I'm, I'm not seeing anything really significant in the Fast and Furious 4 car camp. Jeez.
2: There's, um, the, 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 again, they were, they were there, but they weren't focused on almost. The, the only two cars I can remember right now are Brian's, which are the Skyline. Mm-hmm. And the Subaru hatchback that he has at the end of the film.
0: Um, Sharon, any that you can remember from four?
3: No, not really.
0: <sighs> okay, so five then.:
2: I'm going to cheat. I, I love uh, hobbs's tank people carry a thing. It's called a
0: Gurkha. <laughs> okay. It weighs 10 tons. But it's kind of awesome. (laughs) It is, absolutely. And it
2: is a fitting vehicle for the rock.
0: Someone just said, uh, well, I think the the person in charge of cars said uh, if he got out of a regular-sized vehicle, it would look like he was coming out of a clown car. So it had to be something of equal uh, magnitude.
2: It worked, because you don't forget it.
0: I like the blue Ford GT that uh, Mia gets into when she gets uh, uh, dri- drives off the train in the beginning heist. I love Ford GTS.
2: And yeah, it's a good choice. So also, for the um, Nissan GT that they you see at the start of the film, they're in as well, which is the first one to have the yeah, it's the GTR badge. It was the it's actually the first car to have it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the movie, the Nissan that he's in, it's the last car to have that badge. On nice. If you know your cars, it's got some nice little nods in it.
0: So, yeah, I mean, the thing ends on a kind of, you know, I'll, I'll see you, not if I see you first. first. And then he, he drives off, um, uh, leaving behind the money. And then it turns out that uh, they they kept it all along. And well, hey, we're millionaires. Okay. You
2: know in the scene where Tej cracks the safe?
0: Yeah, and all the money falls out.
2: Were you not waiting for O to Joy? Or is that just me? <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: Christmas, Theo. It's the Time of Miracles. Uh, I, I was just thinking. Surely Hobbs would know where they're. He's trekked them down to their base before. Surely he'd be there within fifteen minutes. Get that money into some vans now.
2: I think he he was being honourable. He's given them twenty four hours. Mm. I'll let you go, but I can give you a head start.
0: And keep you're not taking the money. So yeah. Oh yeah, okay. Whatever appear he basically just gave chase after that twenty-four hours and tracked Dom down for uh, for six. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's a nice ending, and especially the idea that you know, will money change them? And then suddenly they've got everything they ever dreamed of. If you're Roman, and um, <laughs> and at least one of them had to be disgustingly venal and just put all of their money into bling. And uh, it and, was
2: going to be Roman.
0: <laughs> yeah, and um, live this pimp rock and roll. How, like super gangster rap star life for as long as he possibly can i think he, the way he described it it would get him a lot of vaginal action
2: vaginal activity i think Vaginal activity. okay he's
0: tyrese could he not walk into a club and be himself and get a lot of uh, vaginal activity ah, that's
2: tyrese that's not roman pierce
0: yeah well, then maybe Roman needs to shut his mouth and just let the rest of him do the talking.
2: The one thing I think, there's a scene uh, in the film where they're actually talking what the the, the, the the obligatory. What are you going to do when you have the money thing? And I love what Tej wants to do. He wants to open a garage where normal people could go and not be ripped off. Yeah, I he like does that. that, yeah. But the thing is, I was sat there going didn't you actually have a garage in the second one? Until it got impounded. I like that. And I like the fact it shows you sort of what the guys do with the money. So yeah. you you have Roman sort of showing off, <laughs> thinking he's got one up on Tej, who's got the garage and sort of living the normal life. And then actually, no, Tej sort of got one up on him. You've got the comic relief guys going to Monte Carlo. And
3: just losing it all losing on green. It all
0: on green. <laughs> green.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And You've got Han and Giselle together True. in Germany. Yeah. And that's where they're writing about, when are you going to Tokyo, we'll get, we'll get there, eventually. And you've sort of got the, the fact that uh, Brian has got sort of the home life he wanted. Mm-hmm. And you've got Dom sort of finding someone else to share his life with. Uh,
0: Dom's also looking after uh, Vince's family. Yep. His side of it. I
2: think he, I don't know if he gives... All his money he gives quite a lot. of He money gives a too. chunk to her. Yeah, yeah, a
3: sizable chunk goes to. Well, I think was that not just Vince's share? Possible, yeah, could
2: have yeah. been just Vince's share. But I like the note that says "See you later, Uncle Dom."
0: Yeah, the idea of that, like, as opposed to just "I'm taking myself. You will never see me again. Here's some money," which is very cold. The idea that he's still going to be in their lives because they're still family to him—that's that's wonderful.
2: Because I don't think we mentioned it, but Vince actually names his son after Dom. Yeah, mm, Nico. Nico.
3: I think what struck me about the way it shows how each of them deal with their newly acquired wealth is that you can tell a lot about a person by how much they change when they acquire money mm. and most of them don't change in the slightest Dominic doesn't even change his clothes yeah he's wearing the same white vest and weren't. trousers
0: yeah. Yeah. didn't change at all so yeah, it's a, it's a nice ending. They could actually have ended the series there, and it which, would have been like the was, end of Only Fools and Horses.
2: Which, which yeah, should have left wedding, but uh, no, for the time. But yeah, no, that's a happy ending. It's, it would have been a good place, and you know that they have put in a post credit tease yeah. just in case, which is literally uh, the reappearance of the DEA agent played by uh, Eva Mendez. Eva Mendes, whose character well, we can't day, remember for a change. Yeah, but notice how it starts in on her legs. Yeah. yeah. Oh and Don't. it's basically going to, to Hobbs's office, drops him a file through in Germany, it, it goes I'm not interested, it's not them. You know, basically saying it's not Toretto well you'll be interested, you'll be it's interested. like a
0: Marvel movie
2: it is a Marvel tease yeah, it is a tease and he flips the page and there's a picture of Letty taken less than 24 hours ago
0: yeah, I think you're right Sean about that they live in a world where they've got to pay, pay credence to the Avengers they most definitely seem to have fallen into their routine of like the the world is a wide place of vibrant characters that can keep coming back for each one it's almost like um seven eight nine ten they're just the cast is going to keep growing and growing and they'll somehow find a way to get as many people in as possible
3: which is no bad thing if they can handle it well
0: yeah
2: Mm. and this is basically the film that says yeah two happened as well because like we said before it was a very confusing
0: mess
2: but you never you were like okay so this comes after one then yeah,
0: five is more confident. Five is much more of a kind of right. We're going to do this now, mm. Mm. and the tease is on. Letty's alive. Eva Mendes plays Monica Fuentes. By the way, how could we forget Monica Fuentes?
2: Quite easily, apparently.
0: And uh, apart from the fact that Tokyo Drift made the uh, series dip. Um, it has actually been going up and up and up since one two o seven two three six down to one five eight up to three six three up to six two six. Suddenly, it's making serious blockbuster wonga at
2: this five pace. is a uh, five is actually where these films became a blockbuster.
0: Yeah. And a, a serious an event, event film is probably the best way of putting it. Yeah. And that was on a, a, a escalated one hundred twenty five million dollars budget from uh, eighty five for the last one. But they spent it on the stunts and the locations, and it feels a lot bigger. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I really like five. Um, I think it's not quite as special as three, but it's probably better than one um so for me it goes three five one two four okay
3: i think i'm probably gonna say the same I i think it's three and five are actually pretty damn close for me now yeah because both of them do give that sense of the the world is growing um, and it does It does have that I think you mentioned while we were watching it It's starting to really have that TV series feel mm.
0: Which is the same as uh, the, That's the the uh, feeling captured by the Marvel movies That it's just, just this ongoing thing Which is episodic As opposed to just more of the same Which is a, a lot of uh, sequels Just tend to just trot out more of the same Or they hit the same beats Or they have people do the same thing In the same way And kind of a hey remember that bit
3: but isn't it weird though? How once upon a time that would have been a serious insult. This feels like a TV series.
0: Yeah, but now
2: it's it is a good thing. It, it it gives them room to breathe. Even character growth actually stays happened.
0: Mm. Is nice and a chronology and history as well. It says mm. that all of these things you've seen actually played into one another. Uh, Tokyo Han. I really don't like this series, and I've not seen beyond the first one. But as I understand it, the Saw films, appropriately, the director uh, is uh, directing Fast Furious Seven, have a history to them as well.
2: They do. I have seen all of them. They actually do attempt uh, I think like the Fast and Furious they sort of looked into it in some regards they also did manage to pull off this sort of connectedness between all the films and yeah. you can see how one leads to the other leads to the next I don't think they do it nearly as well as the mm-hmm. Fast and Furious films unfortunately um, and quite frankly the, the Saw films regardless of how you feel about that particular subgenre, the the longer they went even though they kept making money they did lose momentum and impact yeah. and quite frankly got quite boring i say this as someone who has seen them all
0: i'm saddened by the fact that uh the director of uh, the saw films has now been subbed out for um justin lynn because i could think of a dozen directors who'd be better to, to sort of pick this one up and to be an outsider directing now after paul walker's death to be directing this family and to step in and go right i'm gonna handle it now i do not envy him
2: i don't but he has got a fairly decent amount of films to his credit, which he mostly he saw d- films. Um, he Insidious. also did
0: Insidious one and two, both. Well, I, I've not seen two, but I really didn't like one. Uh, it, uh, his, direct, his name is Darren uh, James Wan. James Wan, sorry, Darren Lynn Bozeman is the director of Saw two. Sorry, uh,
2: he also did The Conjuring, which was meant to be very good.
0: Hang on,
2: James he actually did the first Wan. Saw film, which was actually quite good.
0: James Wan, ah, he wrote the other Saw movies. Okay. Uh, he's directed uh, Stygian Saw, uh, Dead, Dead Silence, so- Death Sentence, Dockey Heaven, Insidious, The Conjuring, Insidious 2, Fast and Furious 7. It's an odd pedigree to get up there. It's, uh, and I also don't see the correlation between horror movies and increasingly huge stunt based blockbuster car
2: films. <laughs> Until we see what he does with it it's hard to judge i can't judge yeah. a man on a film he's he's just in pre-production or uh, post sorry post-production yeah. on so I i'm still
0: going to go see it i think uh, i'm kind of interested to see what they've done here
3: there is i think a similar technique with an action film and a horror film the uh, the specifics of the skill are different but essentially what they do is Evoke visceral responses in people. They are trying to um, to get an emotional reaction by tripping off certain chemical responses. In the case of action movies, it gets your adrenaline going. It gets you excited. It gets you. It's supposed to get you enthusiastic about things. Um, and in the case of horror movies, it's supposed to invoke dread and um, repulsion. And uh, it. it that neither of them are genres which are well known for doing this through subtlety and uh, delicacy to the point where when that happens in either of those genres, it takes us by surprise. So I think I can see where the, uh, they would look at somebody who could manage a horror franchise and say it's not that far a step for them to manage an action franchise.
2: Also, given the, giving someone the chance to step out of that horror and frightening chance may mean that he is going to try just that little bit harder to say, look, I, yes, I've had success over here with these types of films, but look what I can do when I do this type of film. Hmm.
0: In the past week, I received a very polite email asking me for further details on what I thought about the Power Rangers anti-fan film made by director of talk Joseph Kahn. The sender rather liked the film and the serious tone it adopted with the previously very silly and shallow repetitive children's programme. This is his email. I grew up watching the original Power Rangers, Brian Cranston, Monsters and all, but that's not why I liked Power Rangers as in Power Slash Rangers, the name of the short. It took the original idea of giving superpowers and Jaegers to teenagers with attitude and gave it scope. The show has the Earth under a constant barrage of level 2 kaiju from no less than three intergalactic empires, and it was very casual about that. This short felt like that concept was treated with this level of seriousness. The world it created had much more depth than the original it was based on. The conscripted teenagers had to confront their responsibilities and situations could not be solved in 30 minutes with commercial breaks. There was an actual war with actual aftermath. It feels somewhat like Avatar in that way, in a rated R Tarantino sort of way. If the short had gone on much longer, the heavy tone would have become grating, but I think for what was largely an interrogation scene, it worked. Additionally, I thought that the interrogation scenes were visually creative, and I would have liked to see more of James Van Der Beek in that role. All that being said, the action was lacking, could have used some help from the beatdown boogie crew. I don't know what your relationship with Power Rangers is, but I would still like to hear you talk a little about this one. Now... (laughs) In all seriousness, I am not qualified to discuss how I felt the adaptation succeeded or not, as I've never liked or been interested in Power Rangers. What I do understand, however, is tone. And the tone of this piece was confusing and disturbing. To begin with, it seemed like those Halo ads which have been successful in delivering a believable world of Alien War, albeit one a good deal less glorious and epic than the game's. Then it turned into a rancid, grimy crime thriller that felt like Sabotage or Hitman or something else disgusting and stupid and written by Skip Woods. For those that haven't seen it, imagine your favourite earnest adventure show with mild peril such as Thundercats, Dungeons and Dragons, Ghostbusters, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now imagine actors dressing up as all of those characters and getting murdered horribly and violently or in some cases committing suicide. And that's pretty much it. I was saddened to see Katie Sackhoff, an actress I adored as Starbuck, who has failed to catch a break in the movies and turned up in the uncomfortably misogynistic, blunt and feckless recent Riddick film getting punched around and interrogated. The dialogue was leaden. I take supreme issue with it being compared with Master Wordsmith Tarantino, by the way. Sentences were gnashed out of the cast's mouths like they were chewing rotten, gristly meat. The grotty reference to the ambush on the bride was teeth-clenchingly frustrating. And the reveal, at the end, made the whole thing a pile of nonsense. If it was a Mortal Kombat adaptation, then the foul language, horrendous violence, and grim, dark posturing would have been expected, making this a tediously apt evolution of that game series, which started very silly and violent, and has, over two decades, become the same thing with more gruesome detail. Instead, this deliberately takes something wholly innocent, colourful, and fun, beloved for years, and still somehow churning out successful toys and TV, and turns it into a Mortal Kombat fan film. I didn't see it as taking the premise any more seriously than the TV show, because all I was seeing was contempt for both the source material and the fans. The martial arts was pedestrian, kind of like a slow, clumsy-ass version of the raid, but with the original silly costumes, so your brain trips into the uncanny valley. They had crammed the Power Rangers mythos into this mould, ignoring the fact that it didn't work. A lot of people said, that's the point, it's satire, including the director. But that's not what satire is. Satire is not the juxtaposition of perceived opposites, nor is it simple replication. Satire is shameful examples of recurring cultural motifs exaggerated and depicted with the intent of encouraging people to put an end to them and improve matters. Starship Troopers was an indictment on fascist undertones in the American military-industrial complex. If the message behind Power Rangers is that Hollywood turns everything grim and gritty, then it sorely missed the mark. Hollywood avoids R-rated blockbusters wherever it can help it. The prevailing thought is that PG-13 nets the largest catchment, so the last R-rated movie with real money spent on it, which is what Power Rangers would have to entail, was Watchmen. If that had taken off and spawned a slew of similar movies, then maybe this would have hit the mark and stood as a warning that the innocent things we love will be ruined by trying to aim them at violence-hungry teenage boys. Now, if this was a video game, he might have something. In fact, Hollywood has had more success in recent years steering away from the darkness, with Avengers, Guardians of the Galaxy, Frozen, Big Hero 6, all capturing everyone's attention, while more dour fare, like The Dark Knight Rises and Man of Steel, leaving more of a bitter taste in the mouth, and shit like Sabotage and Hitman getting roundly ignored. If this was a parody of Transformers, it would have focused on toilet humour and grimy sex references, but always in that manner that pushes the PG-13 rather than spills way over into hard R, which is what this does. It also would have had a lot of twirling robots, but the budget didn't cover that, so one of the best sources of comparison was lost by their overreaching. The recent Ninja Turtles film, while seedy and dumb, still felt like Family Fair, aimed at 10-year-old boys with face-palming shots of Megan Fox's bottom for their perving dads. Even child-slaughtering adaptations like The Hunger Games focus on the emotional toll rather than this nihilistic juvenile preoccupation with blood spray and talking tough. That's just the window dressing! Which is all this film delivered. A psychopath's interpretation of the darker Hollywood films. It's like Voldemort attempting to give Draco Malfoy a hug. Mostly... It just felt like Sin City 2, a miserable, juvenile waste of everybody's time that everybody had already grown out of by the day it emerged sulkily from its hole. Nobody saw, and everybody forgot that, yes, there was a Sin City 2. Meanwhile, the Fast and Furious series that director Joseph Kahn started and ended his career lampooning is doing stuff like this.
1: Money will come and go. We know that most important thing in life will always be the people in this room right here right now we
0: know not to make our movie adaptations of children's favorites updated for contemporary times grim and dark violent misogynistic juvenile foul mouthed and nihilistic we have the avengers star trek the lego movie and the new planet of the apes films to lead by example Joseph Kahn, go to your room. Come back when you know what satire is and when you can make films without sneering at both audience and studio. I promise you, you'll have a lot more success. The rest of this episode is an essay read for us by Sharon. Originally written after the fourth film but just before the fifth film. And we will see you next week for The Fast and the Furious 6.
3: The Fast and the Fatherless posted on the Partial Objects blog by Pastor Bagel on April 29th, 2011. When you watch most action movies, it's easy to get caught up in the car chases, explosions and hot chicks that define them. But when you look beyond those, beyond the trite dialogue, beyond the contrived plots, is there anything there? In most action films, there isn't, so they don't last beyond a single picture. But the Fast and the Furious franchise, the fifth installment of which opens today, which has no computer-generated special effects, no costumed superheroes, is not based on a video game or comic book and has no spaceships or giant transforming robots, somehow continues to attract audiences. So what is the attraction? Sometimes a car is not just a car. One. The Ballad of the Post-Freudian Man. All four films released to date, The Fast and the Furious, Too Fast Too Furious, Tokyo Drift and Fast and Furious have pretty standard cops and robbers plots that provide the backdrop for thrilling stunts and high-energy car chases, but that is only on the most superficial level. Below the surface, in between the car chases, these films are about conflicts with fathers. More specifically, they are about a certain kind of postmodern male figure who grows up in the absence of what is known in egghead philosophy circles as the Freudian concept of man. According to Freud, the father and father-dominated family are the primary agents of socialisation. It was the role of the father, or the authority figure generally, it could be an uncle, priest, rabbi, grandfathers, etc. to enforce the child's subordination of his desires, pleasures, happiness, the id, to the rules and structures of reality, the superego. The socialisation of the individual was, in Freud's day, the work of the family. In the 19th century middle-class European society in which Freud developed the theory, Adolescent rebellion and their subsequent maturity are stages of the youthful individual's conflict with the father, with the authority. This is the foundation of the Oedipal complex. No, it's not actually about wanting to bang your mom. Sorry to disappoint. But what of our postmodern society, in which father are very often unknown or simply absent? Then there is no father with whom to have an Oedipal conflict, and no resulting internalisation of the superego, and therefore no maturation. In the obsolescence of the Freudian concept of man, Herbert Marcuse describes a world without Freudian fathers, i.e. without strong authority figures within the family. The socially necessary repressions and the socially necessary behaviour are no longer learned in the long struggle with the father. If there is no father, who is there to oppose the adolescent id, to shape the adolescent ego and superego? No one, and the result, according to Marcuse, is that the ego never forms, and the socialisation, the internalisation of the edible conflict between desire and reality, never takes place. Marcuse goes on to say that when the superego is not internalised, it is sought externally. The individual opens themselves to messages from outside, from the media, peer groups, gangs, tribes, etc. to serve this ego function. And the group seeks a master to impose the reality principle. They seek a leader. The leader imposes the ego, functions as the ego for the half-formed members of the group, navigating their collective desires through the rules and limitation of reality and society. Marcuse describes the result as a form of tribalism or pack behaviour, where the members of the group converge around the tribal or PAC leader, a sort of alpha male figure. According to Marcuse, this is the society you live in, where rampant divorce results in fathers who are a distant or peripheral actor in the lives of their children, and where structure and authority have given way to immediate gratification, peer pressure, and groupthink. 2. That's my dad. Marcuse's theory may have problems in its application in the real world, but it accurately describes nearly every single male character in all four of the Fast and Furious films. The films make it a point to tell us about the childhoods of these characters. Vin Diesel's character, Dominic Toretto, is the leader of the team of street racers that includes mad scientist mechanic Jesse and his sister Mia, among others. It is this team that undercover cop Brian O'Connor infiltrates, and in The Fast and the Furious, we learn quite a lot about Toretto's father. Toretto. Me and my dad built her. 900 horses of Detroit muscle. You know what she ran in Palmdale? O'Connor. No. What? Toretto. Nine seconds flat. My Dad was driving. So much talk, the chassis twisted coming off the line. Barely kept her on the track. O'Connor, so what's your best time? Toretto, I've never driven her. It scares the shit out of me. That's my Dad. He was coming up in the pro-stock car circuit. Last race of the season, a guy named Kenny Linder came up from inside in the final turn. He clipped his bumper and put him in the wall at 120. I watched my Dad burn to death. I remember hearing him scream. But the people that were there said he had died before the tanks blew. They said it was me who was screaming. I saw Linda about a week later. I had a wrench and I hit him. And I didn't intend to keep hitting him, but when I finished I couldn't lift my arm. He's a janitor at a high school. He has to take the bus to work every day. And they banned me from the tracks for life. Then he says, I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nothing else matters. Not the mortgage, not the store, not my team and all their bullshit. For those ten seconds or less, I'm free. Toretto has fond memories of his father, but when his father died, Toretto loses control and nearly kills the other driver. The absence of that regulating socialising presence puts him at the mercy of his base and reflexive impulses. It wasn't that Toretto had no father, it was that his father died before Dom's Oedipal conflict was resolved, leaving Toretto with a half-formed psyche, alternately in control and out of control, alternately an immature adolescent racer and an adult with a mortgage and a store to worry about. That last line is particularly revealing. Toretto is not a carefree rebel or outlaw criminal. He has a mortgage. He literally has to mind the store. These are the burdens of the head of a household, a man with responsibilities, who is father to his team in everything but name. Toretto is more than some alpha male head of a street gang. He sees himself as their father, and they see him that way too. Twice in the franchise we are shown the team sitting down to dinner. The first time at his backyard barbecue, he slaps Jesse's hand when he reaches in for food before saying grace. In the fourth film, he sits down to another dinner with his sister and Brian and saying grace thanks the Lord for food, family and friendship. But because Toretto's father died before the edible conflict was resolved, Toretto had these responsibilities forced on him and in the first film struggles to pull away from them. He says he only feels free when he races and that's because he's stuck in a state of limbo between adolescence and adulthood in which he ages but doesn't grow up. The muscle car he built with his dad scares him because it represents mortality. His father's, of course, but also his own. As long as he remains an adolescent, driving the tuna import cars, Toretto is an invincible youth. Once he gets behind the wheel, he is vulnerable. Likewise, the film gives us insight into Jesse's relationship with his father. Jesse. Throwing down the pink slip just like you. O'Connor. The pink slip to what? The Jetta? You can't bet your dad's car. Jesse. Jesse. It's all right, I ain't losing. This fool is running a Honda 2000. I'll win. That way me and my dad can roll when he gets out of prison. It's all good. Now we know Jesse's father is missing as well. But it isn't all good. When Jesse loses the race, he is unable to cope with losing his real father's car and runs back to his surrogate father, Toretto, for help. I'm so scared, Jesse confesses to Dom. I don't know what I'm doing. Will you please help me? Lacking a father, he has no mechanism for moderating his impulses or taking responsibility. ...so he turns to Toretto to do those things for him. In the second film of the series, Too Fast Too Furious... ...we are introduced to a new character, Roman Pierce, ...who we are told was O'Connor's childhood friend. And once again, we learn that Roman did not have a strong authority figure growing up. Roman describes himself in his youth as... ...wild and out, a crazy man, riding solo. Roman recalls, no one could tell me nothing. When Roman's attitude is challenged by the drug dealer who hired him to deliver money... Roman responds with a cliché that happened to be true. i got a problem with authority. So no stern 19th century Viennese father figure in Roman's childhood either. The third film, Tokyo Drift, introduces an entirely new cast of characters to the franchise and it is even more of a parade of unresolved edible conflicts. Protagonist Sean Boswell is forced to leave the US and move in with his father, a naval officer stationed in Tokyo. At least he'll have a decent military upbringing to straighten him out, right? I ain't no army brat, Sean reminds us. When he shows up at his father's house in Tokyo, dad attempts to lay down the law. You just can't keep moving away every time you get into trouble, he lectures. Sean replies, worked for you. So in that brief 30 seconds of dialogue, we know that Sean's father abandoned his family and has become a distant presence in Sean's life, geographically and psychologically. Even though Sean is physically reunited with his dad, he rejects it. Halfway through the film, Sean moves out of his dad's house, and like Jesse with Toretto, he moves into the garage-stroke workshop of Han, a US expatriate of Japanese descent who organises underground drift races and is himself a fugitive from the law. Later in the film, in an attempt to identify with the film's love interest, Neela, Sean explains how she and he are alike. Your mama and daddy was never home, so you walked around pissed off all the time, and now you found your family with these drift nuts. During the course of the film, we learn that Neela's mother was a gaijin hostess, i.e. escort or prostitute, and that she was raised by the grandmother of DK, who is her boyfriend and the star of the underground drifting subculture. But we learn nothing about her father and can safely infer that he is out of the picture. Neela's unresolved electrocomplex mirrors Sean's. When Neela takes Sean on a midnight drive through the mountains, she relates a story from her childhood. Even before we could drive, we'd cut class, sneak out, come up here and watch the older kids drift. By drift, she means the particular style of auto racing, but her use of the word in the context of her childhood has a double meaning. She would watch the older kids drift through adolescence, playful and carefree. She describes the experience of drift racing as everything else just disappears, no past and no future. This echoes Toretto's description of drag racing. For those ten seconds or less, I'm free. It is in precisely this same way, Marcuse tells us, that the unsocialized, Oedipal youth drifts through adolescence, looking for identification within a group and an externalised superego in the leader of that group, the father figure they never had. For Neela, it became DK. And what does DK stand for? Drift King, King of the Drift Racers, King of those who are adrift. In all these films we are presented with male characters suffering from unresolved Oedipal conflicts due to the early death, absence or abandonment by their fathers. But conspicuously absent from these four films is any description of Brian O'Connor's father. Brian is ostensibly the main character of all of the films, and we know nothing about him. But given his long history with Roman Pierce, we can assume that Brian's childhood is mirroring Roman's. Youthful indiscretions to petty auto theft, constantly in trouble with the law. If there is any narrative consistency in these films, we should expect that Brian's father had no presence in his life. And it is his search for an externalised superego that establishes the underlying conflict of the first, second and fourth films, Brian's drifting between two externalised super-egos, the police force on one hand, and Dom Toretto on the other. 3. There's all kinds of family, Brian. Brian O'Connor is the archetypical post-Freudian man, who even in adulthood has no idea who he is or what rules to live by. And all of the racing teams in the LA Racing Underground that Brian comes across, it is Toretto that Brian is drawn to. Though Toretto still has his unresolved father issues, it is because his father died late in Dom's adolescence. So Dom did have a father, and did internalise some of his superego. But his father died before the process was complete. So of all the characters, Dom is closest to resolving his issues, and that's why he can serve as a strong father figure to the others. He's like gravity, his sister Mia describes. Everything just gets pulled to him. In Fast and Furious, O'Connor tells Mia, one thing I learned from Dom is that nothing really matters unless you have a code. But when she asks Brian, what's your code? He simply replies, I'm working on it. Code is the superego. And even in the fourth film, Brian's is a work in progress. Without an internalised superego, O'Connor can never make it as a cop. The role of the police is, after all, to enforce the law, to be society's externalised superego at large. But how can Brian take on the role of society's superego when his own ego is still unformed? How can he enforce the laws of other when he is still working on his own? His approach to the police force is a more hesitant and abortive attempt to join the homogenous tribal groups Mark Hughes talks about. It's easy to be a police officer because other people are telling you what to do. But it lacks that strong leader, that external ego that he can attach himself to. And that's why he is drawn to Toretto's family. Dom tells Brian the story about him building the Charger with his dad. Later in that first film, Brian builds the Supra with Dom. In the fourth film, O'Connor helps Toretto rebuild the Charger that was smashed at the end of the first film. These scenes echo the memory Toretto related in his garage, only this time Toretto is the father figure and Brian is the adolescent. Brian is torn between two families, establishing both the police force and Toretto in his mind as the paternal entities against which he wants to rebel. In the fourth film, O'Connor is once again on the side of the law, as an FBI undercover agent. As the FBI and cops track his driving, they rebuke him. That's your third traffic violation in less than three blocks. Slow it down, O'Connor. He responds like a rebellious teenager. Sure thing, Dad. He drifts between the two families, police to Toretto and back again. Mia tells him in the fourth film, maybe you're lying to yourself. Maybe you're not the good guy pretending to be the bad guy. Maybe you're the bad guy pretending to be the good guy. In The Fast and the Furious, the LAPD detective running O'Connor's undercover operation tells him, There's all kinds of family, Brian. That's a choice you're going to have to make. But O'Connor vacillates between his two possible families, the cops or the renegades on the street, never quite fitting into one or the other. When he's out of the car, he's a member of the police force, but once he's behind the wheel, he wants to rebel from the FBI family and rejoin Toretto's family on the streets. Brian never makes the choice. But he is no more at home among the street racers. In that world, he finds himself as the outsider, the buster. O'Connor tries to prove his mettle a number of times throughout the film by racing Toretto over and over again, but he loses each time. Yet he always comes back for more, seeking the leader's approval, even if it means risking his car and his life just to finish a close second. In his first race with Toretto, he gambles his car for the cash and the respect, and when he loses, he laughingly reminds Toretto, I almost had you. At the conclusion of the climax of the fourth film, O'Connor reminds Toretto, you know I would have won that race if you didn't cheat, right? He lets Toretto go free at the end of the first film, and breaks him out of prison in the fourth film. He recognises Toretto as the leader, as the formed ego that could replace his unformed one. But Toretto never really accepts him, still a buster, he remarks, until he chooses, he will never fit in among either group. These races between O'Connor and Toretto are very important, They symbolise the conflict between Toretto the father and O'Connor the impulsive youth. The race itself is the metaphor for Brian's Oedipal conflict. O'Connor's repeated losses to Toretto in these races symbolise the repression of his id by Toretto's paternal superego. Narratively speaking, the races are a concise measure of the current state of O'Connor's Oedipal complex. Should O'Connor win one of these races in a future film, it would represent the killing of the father, the internalisation of that paternal authority it would mean O'Connor is an adult, ready to be the father of his own family. 4. You know you still owe me a 10-second car. So if Toretto is the father figure, the externalised ego, superego, and O'Connor and the others are the post-Freudian fatherless men looking for a leader, what's with all the cars? Are they just window dressing to get people in the seats? Notice that there are two kinds of cars in these films. First, there are the high-performance modified imports, They are Japanese compacts, with high-pitched engines tuned with the precision of a Swiss watch, decked out in logos and decals, painted shiny bright day-glow colours with neon running lights underneath. These are the cars all the characters in the films race, from LA to Tokyo to Miami to Mexico. These are the cars Dom Toretto and his team drive in the first film. Then there are the muscle cars. These are vintage 70s and 80s sedans, grey, black and chrome, growling, dominating hulks. This is the 1970 Dodge Charger that Toretto built with his father that scares the hell out of him and that nearly kills him in the climax of the first film. In a world of children, 10-second Japanese import cars, they are men, the 9-second American muscle cars. The tuna imports look like Hot Wheels, which is appropriate because they are driven by the movie's metaphorical children. The muscle cars are driven by adults. Consider that Toretto races these 10-second cars for considerable money and yet never chooses to drive the sure thing in his garage. He drives imports throughout the first film, until his teammates end up in the hospital and Jesse ends up murdered. Then Toretto is forced to grow up instead of clinging to his reckless youth. And only when he accepts this role, with all its burdens, when he accepts that he is not an invincible child but a vulnerable man, only then does he get behind the wheel of his dad's 70s muscle car. From this point on and throughout the rest of the franchise, Toretto never again drives a tuned import car. He drives only vintage muscle cars, a 1970 Chevrolet Chevelle SS, a 1984 Buick Grand National, a 1970 Plymouth Roadrunner and a 1973 Chevrolet Camaro. Though Brian gives him the keys to the Supra to flee the approaching police after the Charger is crashed, we never see Dom drive it, and in the vignette after the credits of the first film, we see Dom driving through the deserts of Mexico in the Chevelle. Toretto has accepted adulthood and all the burdens and responsibilities that entails. He leaves behind his childhood for good. The vintage muscle car is a metaphor for adulthood, responsibility and maturity that is repeated time and again throughout the series of films. In Tokyo Drift, Sean chooses to race one last time to avenge Han's death, and to assume responsibility for the chaos and trouble his impulsiveness caused. For this race, rather than drive the imports used to master drifting throughout the film, he instead uses his father's unfinished vintage Mustang, which he finishes building using parts salvaged from those import drift cars. Accepting responsibility means growing out of the resentment he had for his absent dad. It means growing up, and therefore he earns the right to use his father's car. But O'Connor never grows up through the three films in which he appears. He never really steps up and takes responsibility. He never becomes a man of action, a man of will. In the first film, O'Connor drives the Supra he builds with Dom, just as Dom drives the Charger he built with his father. But in Too Fast Too Furious, he and Roman race two much older drivers for their muscle cars, and they ditch their imports for these muscle cars during the climactic chase scene. But this is a ruse, a flirtation with adulthood that doesn't stick. At the end of Too Fast Too Furious, he and Roman end up totaling the muscle cars, so in O'Connor's next film, when he is back with the FBI, he chooses to rebuild a tuner import to use in an undercover operation, where he ends up running against and losing to Toretto, driving the 70 Charger. O'Connor spends the fourth film with the import, and as you'd expect, he spends this film in conflict with Toretto. Their conflict from the first film is not resolved. Toretto is firmly established in his role as father, and O'Connor is still the rebellious kid. This is how O'Connor moves throughout his three films. He never grows beyond adolescence, never resolves his father issues, and never resolves this Oedipal conflict. He wants to be an adult, but he's also afraid to be the adult. But at the end of Fast and Furious, O'Connor is forced to choose and makes the moral choice that lets him move beyond stunted adolescence and squarely into adulthood. O'Connor, ever the good FBI agent, captures the bad guy and brings in Toretto. At Toretto's sentencing, however, the judge chooses not to consider O'Connor's testimony, vouching for Toretto's assistance and good-faith help in bringing down the drug dealer. When the judge sentences Toretto to 25 years without parole, O'Connor is shocked. He expected the law to be moral, to live up to a moral code. When it doesn't, he abandons the law in favour of defending his newly formed moral code, the code he'd been working on for three films, family, loyalty and friendship, first and above all others. O'Connor, having found his own code, now takes up the mantle left by his surrogate father. Metaphorically, he becomes his surrogate father. In the epilogue of Fast and Furious, when the team is reassembled to ambush the prison bus carrying Toretto, O'Connor leads the team from behind the wheel of the 1970 Charger, the car Toretto built with his dad, and which O'Connor built with Toretto, his surrogate dad. 5. I'm through running. So if Brian and Dom's edible conflicts are resolved, we are presented with something of a narrative conundrum. The conflict that drove the relationship between Brian and Dom, which was central to the franchise, is settled, so what could possibly happen in the fifth film being released today? This is one of those rare instances where Hollywood films can either transcend their plots and become art, or retreat to safe, bankable ground and become B-grade forgettable sequels. Specifically, the new film must do at least two things or else risk becoming a parody of itself. O'Connor needs to move forward in his maturation and become the father he displaced in resolving the conflict. One way to do this would be for Brian to start a family with Mia, either marrying her or having a child with her. If this happens, there should be no more of the Oedipal drag racing between Toretto and O'Connor, and it should end conclusively, e.g. they have a race that Brian decides not to finish, realising that he now has responsibilities. If Toretto and O'Connor do have a drag race, then it means Brian still sees Dom as the father to be killed, and this in turn would be inconsistent with Brian assuming the mantle of fatherhood at the end of the previous film. It would mean that Brian's character has slid back into the role of reckless man-child. There is no middle ground. But it also means that Toretto's maturity stalls out at the father stage, which brings up the second thing the film needs to do in order to push the franchise beyond hackneyed retread territory. The fifth film needs to evolve Toretto beyond father figure. If Brian is now an adult, Toretto's role isn't needed, so he needs to evolve further, to confront the issues of his mortality that are at the heart of adulthood, and to confront the condition, the situation, that gave rise to the post-Freudian masses of men in both the racing scenes and the packed movie theatres. He needs to step into the role of tribal elder, a diffuse and wise presence in the lives of many, not just his family. To become a strong presence moving regularly through the fatherless families that constitute much of the underclasses in Mexico and South America, where the films take place. But Hollywood being Hollywood, I would bet my money on not taking the fifth film in this direction, choosing instead to pigeonhole O'Connor in the role of thrill-seeking man-child and Toretto in the role of racing dad. Because Hollywood knows that because there is always a new crop of post Freudian adolescents driven libidinally by fast cars and hot chicks, there is no reason to push the story to get the grown ups to come out. And on that note,
1: we cue the music. Yeah! 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 yeah, yeah. Don Omar! Omar. J the the yeah, Come on! Come on! Well, I did We do y'all know exactly how we rollin' and we huggin' every block No matter how police patrolin' and we do it how we do it Whether it's now or it's later and we always handle business Cause we belt. getting in this paper, what you want, what you need As we walk through every gutter, every hood and every street and every block We got it covered, throwin' money while we in the club With shorties on the polis, get it poppin' in this bitch Me and my clique comin' through, this how we, we roll. I get up in that bed and start it, all you hear is <laughs> roaring up the engine till it pop like a balloon. Like my Dutch, hit the clutch, throwing in the gear and fuel. Yeah. in the fast car, driving like it's NASCAR, tearing up the asphalt. When I'm in that Jaguar, dipping away from NASCAR, red line in the dashboard. Exhaust blowing fire yeah. like a rocket yeah. off the blast how we roll. roll. You know how we do it. You know we the realest when it come to doing music. You don't wanna see me prove it, baby. If I gotta lose it, then it's out. Turn your radio on. You, you gon' hear it. Do Take your spit. Hate on me? Why the hell you doing that? How the hell you be a loser? Hating on me? I'm the best. I be pissing on competition. If there's any, give me more. Of my flows are never getting used up. Don't need a genie. We G boys, we roll. Pedal to the metal, now we blowin' in the wind uh, Top back, now you better stop that If you try to front, you already know we kill it to the end uh, Every day we gotta go secure another win uh, Put that money with your mouth is spent uh, Let's get it poppin', everybody know that When we in the building, here we going in Couple Porsches, couple Bugattis, Phantoms, Derrick Lamb lenses, couple of back, suited and booted SLR McLaren, benches rolling. see the way we holdin' See the money foldin', everybody see the way we hit it I Chosen, when we hit the roadin', everything is golden Y'all already know how we get it Heal uh, out on they ass, 160 read on the dash uh, Hand on the wheel and my feet on the gas got everything on Smash, done, no more, let's get it. <laughs> Reek the Ville, J-Do, what yeah. up? See the way we do it, see the way we cut up. Put your money where your mouth is, or shut, shut up. Eagle shots, everybody in the place. Let me see you put your gun up. We gon' pop. Ready if you ready. Y'all already know the way we run up. When we come to take over the streets, y'all niggas know the goal. Every time we put it down, the whole world know that's how we...